All right. We are live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Break, The Rules, live stream. I'm your host, Lev Polyakov, and we are here with Sean Fitzgerald, a.k.a. Actual Justice Warrior, and the activist and entrepreneur, Glenn E. Martin, who is a big criminal justice reform advocate. And today we are talking about criminal justice reform. We are talking about how to make for actual justice, you know, to uh, borrow uh, Sean's name here for a second. And you guys come from different environments, uh, which is especially why with Break the Rules, the show that brings all these different people together with all these crazy crossovers, it's very important that such a conversation takes place. Before we get started, once again, make sure to smash that subscribe button, smash the like button, click the bell. The bell is very important. And also, levpo.substack.com or levslens.com. I just wrote a new article, Elon Musk Resistance is Futile. Uh, as the Tesla founder preaches capitulation in the face of Russia, Putin reinforces ties with Hamas and the new axis of evil. Be sure to check that out. I'm going to post the link in the chat for all of you. Anyway, we're going to get started with uh, Mr. Martin. Uh, you have a very interesting uh, story. You were incarcerated uh, for quite a while, and you are a criminal justice uh, reformer. So please let us know how exactly you came to the views that you hold today. But also the same question that I'm going to ask Deshaun is uh, how do you define uh, justice? What is actual justice in your opinion? So let's go for it. And I'm going to bring it over to Sean. Oh, you want me to go first? I thought you were asking. Uh, him. No, no. First, Glenn. Then I'm going to bring it over to oh, Sean. Okay, okay yeah. got it. Yeah, you confused me for a second, too. Um, look, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, single thing, single parent household, couple of brothers. Um, older brother went into the military, ended up becoming a U.S. Marshal and a federal correction officer at various times. And uh, younger brother and I in and out of jail and then ultimately in and out of prison. Um, earned a quality two-year liberal arts degree while I was in prison, came out, landed at a couple of nonprofits that did criminal justice reform. Uh, I was already motivated from the time I spent in, in prison. I think we lock up some of America's best and brightest. And I think we tell the wrong story about who we lock up. I don't think it's the truth and about what we do with people when they're locked up. And so I came out motivated, but I was looking for a job like anyone else who's formerly incarcerated but happened to land at a nonprofit and just learned a lot about how to do criminal justice reform work. And that just has helped shape my views. I think more recently, I've become a bit more sort of diverse in not just in my politics, but also in my views on how to get things done. But we can talk about that during the conversation. Absolutely, uh, Glenn. And uh, to ask you that question about what justice is, I do want to start with you. So how do you define justice, actual justice? Yeah, I define justice as uh, the collective, um, the sort of society, um, finding a balance between parsimony, proportionality, and grace. Um, I think that uh, we lie to ourselves about there being good and bad, um, good and evil, if you will, uh, a defendant and a victim. I think that those, uh, that polarization of our criminal justice system uh, creates a false narrative about human beings. We all mess up and we all do good things and we all do crazy bad things and we all have the capacity to do both. And I think our criminal justice system is just built to be deliberately adversarial. So for me, that's not justice. Justice is what I mentioned earlier. All right, Sean, you've got the floor. 
Oh, so, I mean, if we're going to start with background, uh, yeah, I was on. also raised in New York, single parent household. Parents were in the military, not the brother. But um, yeah, as far as as far as where I uh, land or, or how I got to my positions on criminal justice, I studied this in university. I was more in line with a lot of reforms before. But then I realized that a lot of the things proposed and a lot of the promises made were never actually delivered. Like people said that if you do this, if you go softer in these categories, crime will go down. And then we start to see crime go up. And it's like, hey, like I'm not against reform overall, but I want to adjust these policies that aren't working. And then you find out from a lot of these activists that they don't care that crime is going up. They just want to tear down the system. So for me, justice is proportional consequences to your actions. And, the, and those actions in a criminal context should be actions that create harm against other people. So I'm not about locking up people for using marijuana or even any drug. Like if you're seriously addicted, I don't think we should allow you to just use openly on the street. We should, as a society, figure out a way to help you. But if you aggress upon another person, then you should face consequences that are proportional to that. And as of right now, we try to exchange time for the crime. I'm not sure if that's the exact proportional way that we should be doing it, but it is the system we have now. And until a better alternative is proposed, I don't think you just throw out the baby with the bathwater. So, Glenn, what could be an alternative to what Sean is talking about that could possibly have you guys seeing closer eye to eye here? And uh, what do you think in general about uh, Sean's arguments here dealing with the uh, activists as he did? Yeah, well, to answer your first question, racism aside for a second, um, I just got back from Hamburg and Norway and saw prisons that operate totally different than in the United States. I do think our system operates the way it does because there's some systemic issues uh, that get in the way of having a system that operates the way systems do in some parts of Europe. But the one thing I saw that costs nothing is to treat people like human beings. Like the correction officers literally said the word uh, human dignity uh, more often than even advocates say it here in the United States. Like they prided themselves on the idea that they treated people like human beings and that those folks are going to return to their communities and they wanted them to return successfully. That's something that just doesn't really exist in our system in any meaningful way. Um, And then with respect to the advocates, (laughs) I don't know how much pushback you're going to get from me. When I did the work to try to close Rikers, the abolitionists were a much more significant opposition than the politicians. Um, So I have my own critiques of people who are absolutists on anything And when I was doing the work to close Rikers, which I would argue is the biggest uh, reduction in jail beds that we've ever seen in the United States, the advocates told me that unless we end up with no beds at all, that I was going to become the target of their vitriol and ended up becoming so. Um, But I will say this. I do think that if you want to see the system change, you have to have an appetite for the transition and it can't be overnight. And yes, some things are going to go wrong. People are going to commit crimes. People are going to reoffend. But, but my experience coming out of prison was that the majority of people, when they come out, they genuinely want to do the right thing. And I just think that, you know, if you scare people enough, they don't care what it costs to lock people up. And it's hard to help people go from the system we have to a system that is more parsimonious, more proportional, has more grace, because people don't have an appetite for the interim. And, and the interim probably means a lot of people getting hurt as we figure out how to do it differently. 
Yeah, Sean, the Norway uh, situation uh, and uh, Rikers and wherever else uh, you want to take this conversation. So I, I don't mind adopting some of the things that like our European counterparts have. I don't think we should the total lack of dignity. In fact, one of the things that I criticize uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom for is that he released a bunch of inmates, but then he closed the prisons. But the, one of the things that creates huge problems in prisons is just population density. So if he was going to release tens of thousands of inmates and we can criticize which ones he released or whatever in another context, to me, closing the prisons that they were in so you don't change the population density of the ones that remain like that, that's a terrible policy. We've seen time and time again that densely populated prisons with people on top of each other lead to a bunch of negative outcomes. So like I'm fine adopting certain things to make people that are locked up. Uh, more comfortable, treated more humanely. I mean, there's a ton of sexual assault that goes on in prisons. Like that is just treated like it's a standard normal thing. And it's not. That's something that you should go after. And your your separation from your community while you're incarcerated is directly correlated with your recidivism rate. So I'm fine even building more facilities so that they can be closer to more populations so that they could actually stay connected with members of their families. There's a bunch of things we do in United States prisons that are definitely wrong. I'm not about it. And reducing beds per facility, depending on how it's done, I might even be in favor of because again, densely popular and you could see them in like California uh, specifically when you have these people in like the gymnasium and they're all in triple bunks and there's a hundred of them in this one room that's going to lead to a lot of problems you have mentally ill people in these facilities you have people who are violent criminals and then you have people who could go either way with their life once they get out but they're stacked into this situation where it's like inherently combative so that's not a reform i would be against Interesting. I think <laughs> I think we land on the same page. Um, when I went to Norway, one thing I picked up on is that you literally have people's homes a stone throw away from the prison. Uh, you know, here in the United States, you know, there's a lot of nimbyism, not in my backyard. So prisons are built out in the middle of nowhere, far away from people's families and their homes and so on. But in, in Norway, the towns were actually built around the prison. The prison was built first and then the entire towns built around it. And they have something called open prisons where people literally go to the shopping mall from prison with a correction officer. I mean, there's some stuff that happens there that I don't think we'd ever be able to wrap our heads around. But I got to be honest, it normalizes society for people who are exiting prison a lot differently than we do here, where you can do 40 years and get a bus ticket and end up in midtown Manhattan. Right. Well, I, I will also add, like, there are huge differences between the United States and Norway. First and foremost, like if you look at any European country's homicide rate and you compare it to ours, like they're nowhere even close. I think the closest any European country has ever gotten was Italy at 2.8 per 100,000. And at that point in time, I think the United States was either five or eight times higher. So they do have a they do have less violent crime overall. And maybe that's why they have more liberal prison policies. But I'm fine to adopt like certain things that could work in an American context, but I don't think that that you could just apply the Norwegian model writ large and it will be perfectly fine. We just have more violent criminals in comparison. I think I think that's I think I agree with you partially. Um, you cannot apply the full model here. I get that. Like we'll be dead and gone by the time we see 20 percent of what they do in Norway. But 
it's pretty hard to end up in prison in Norway. So don't lose the fact that if you actually end up in prison, you're not that much different than the population here that's in prison in terms of people with violent crimes and so on. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to avoid incarceration in places like Hamburg, where putting a human being in a cage is something uh, that Germany tries it to avoid as much as possible. By the time you end up there, you usually have pretty serious charges. Mm, but the question there is, what is the situation within Germany when it comes to, for example, the migrant situation, when you have migrants who come from different parts of the world that uh, have a different culture, and now all of a sudden you have these rising cases of, you know, uh, uh, rapes, uh, knife stabbings, things like that. So when I take a look at Norway, for instance, or Sweden, when it comes to specifically Sweden, when it comes to the... Uh, uh, bombings that were going on there for a long time in uh, Malmo. And now Sweden has started to do something about the situation where for a long time they didn't, because for a long time it's kind of like when you have, uh, for example, creatures who are not used to human beings, you know, somewhere, and then human beings are introduced, they're not going to know that they have to run away. So they're going to be a little bit more... Uh, uh, you know, permissive. And then the question is, when it comes to a high trust society like Norway or like Sweden, where now you're introducing a lot of criminal elements, would that system that they have set up for a long time necessarily work if there's going to be too many people who are not going to be, uh, at, you know, following the same um, uh, social contract? Yeah. So, you know, it was clear when I was in Europe touring that the term immigrant, like immigrant is the new black. Like it was clear that here in the United States where people would say black people are criminals, like there, there was a lot of what you just described. Like, oh, we have all these immigrants and they're committing crime. I wanna be clear, like in my experience and the data proves that crime is usually situational. Um, and so, uh, you know, let's have a conversation about immigrants in the United States. Uh, think of gangs of New York, like, Black and brown immigrants, which are the ones that tend to be the high number of immigrants these days, um, the behaviors that you're seeing from them, if you want to define them as criminal, um, we've seen it before. We've seen it before, except our exponential growth in our prison system in the United States started about five decades ago. And we made a very deliberate decision when we opened up the doors for black and brown people in other areas that this was a way to still control that population of people. I just think that if you look at the timing, Civil Rights Act, boom, increase in incarceration, crack epidemic, further increase in incarceration, more 700% increase in women getting locked up lately. I mean, there's some places in our criminal justice system where we've had some wins. And I think the advocates, particularly the progressives, don't spend enough time pointing to those wins and figuring out how to do more of what works and less of what doesn't. I actually agree with what you said earlier that some of them are just like, I don't care if crime's going up, which I think is disgusting because it's black and brown people that have to deal with those increases in crime. But I just want to make sure in this conversation, at least for me, I don't want to attach criminality to skin, to skin color. Not, not, not skin color. I'll give you this quick example before Sean uh, uh, speaks uh, on this, not skin color culture not skin color culture that's for me the main thing here you take a look at israel for example there are people who are brown much browner than some of the palestinians who are fighting in the israeli defense forces culture not skin color but anyway sean uh let me know what you think 
Yeah, so, I mean, I would say your timing's a bit off because from the 60s to the late 70s, prison population as a percentage of our population went down. It didn't go up. And this is when we adopted a lot of, like, reformist kind of a mindset that we see uh, currently being redredged right now where the focus was on poverty. This is why we had the war on poverty. When we when we focus on the idea that criminals are victims of circumstances and not perpetrators, I think by 1979, the average sentence that you would get for a homicide, which includes, to be fair, not just like top of the line murder, but all the way through the manslaughter charges was a little over five years. The average sentence that you would get for a rape was around three years. So we tried this strategy before. But this also coincided with a great like spike in crime. So then we started incarcerating people in the 80s. It ramped up again to an additional fold in the 90s. And in the mid 90s, we saw a fever break. So I know a lot of people are very critical about like mass incarceration. But in the context in which these policies were instituted, we had significantly higher crime than even right now. And right now we are seeing a little bit of a crime peak. And I don't like when people try to dismiss this by comparing it to like the 90s or the 80s. But in context, it just isn't as bad as the 90s and the 80s when a lot of these tough on crime policies were instituted. That doesn't mean that they're all justified, but it means that there is a reason behind that. I don't know if we're fully disagreeing here. So I said the last 50 years, um, I can point to different points during those 50 years where things spiked more than other uh, years in those 50 years. But I also think, again, this heavy distinction you're making uh, between victims and offenders, that line is not as thick in the communities I come from. Like, I guarantee you, I've probably been the victim of crime way more often than you have. And I just think that, you know, when you're a victim of crime and you don't receive the same sort of supports and investments as other victims, worthy victims, sometimes that behavior translates into offending behavior. And I just think that until we dig a little bit deeper and stop making the full bifurcation, we're not going to come up with creative solutions. I mean, look at me now. I own 90 properties. I've given away about 200 grand in philanthropy in the last year or so. Like those things could have happened for me years ago. I pay more taxes than most people I know. Those things could have happened before I went to prison. Like my high school uh, counselor didn't need to tell me hey, Glenn, your family's broke. You're never going to go to college. You should go to Kentucky Fried Chicken and get a job. It was somebody in prison who actually said to me, wow, your grades look amazing. You should go to college. And I ended up earning, uh, learning Russian literature and upper English lit and coming out and sort of paving the way to something different. All I'm saying is that if it's too black and white, then I think actually we just keep doing what we've been doing, hoping to get a different outcome. And I just don't think we're achieving the public safety that makes it worth, for instance, on Rikers Island, spending $556,000 per bed per year. Well, again, I was just addressing the idea that the civil rights gains coincide with mass incarceration. That's actually not true. The civil rights legislation that passed in the 60s, like that coincided with the softening of the criminal justice system up until around the 80s. Like that's all I was specifically addressing. I don't think it's this one to one as you portrayed it earlier. Do you guys uh, still disagree on that? Glenn, would you uh, say that Sean is correct on this? Or if not, why not? I mean, I would ask Sean to take a look at the Attica Rebellion and ask himself, like, what was going on around that time for black and brown communities? I think that if you look at America writ large, there's probably a conversation about um, the civil rights ever paving the way to opportunity for people of color. And in many ways, it did. 
but there were other things that were happening at the same time that obviously didn't happen in a year or two, but happened over a decade or two that I think has led to opening the doors wider to brown, black and brown people ending up in our criminal justice system. I just think the outcomes, it's not that everyone in the system is racist, it's that the system itself is systemically racist. Who has a lawyer? Who doesn't? Who gets probation? Who doesn't? Who gets a great pre-sentencing report? Who doesn't? Who gets into a shock incarceration program to get out early? Who doesn't? Who gets in front of a judge who looks at a defendant and says, that guy looks like my kid. I'm going to give him a shot versus that guy looks like the guy who burglarized my house when I was young. I'm not giving him a shot. Hmm. Like that exists in the system, whether we like it or not. It just does. Sean, response. Yeah. I mean, there, I, there's not really a response. It's a, it's a lot of like um, I was saying specifically that incarceration went down from the 60s to like 1978. And like you're talking I'm about implicit bias. I, I think you're right. The data shows that. I'll give you that. You're right. But yeah. All right. And well, then moving. Yeah. I, that coincided with a dramatic crime increase. And again, like one of the things I like to point to is victimization surveys or point to homicide statistics, because this is the most solid data. Like people should know that uniform crime reports are interesting, but that's like crimes that are reported. And a lot of communities don't report crimes, which is why we send out these victimization surveys. So like the increase was real. It did happen. I'm saying that the incarceration as a solution was a response to that increase. Yeah, and I just think it was a poor response. Well, what would be I mean, uh, I, I was, I was, the alternative I was at, here? When I was at Rikers, there were 22,000 people there. When I started the campaign to shut down Rikers, there were 11,500. Before COVID, we got down to about 4,800. During COVID, we got down to 3,500. There was not a drastic change in public safety during those times. The fact of the matter is I'm just saying that incarceration as a response to crime is just a really poor response except for places where we have no alternatives to getting people to desist from criminal behavior. I just think there's a lot of people. I met a lot of people in prison who frankly didn't belong there. I met some people who absolutely belong there, but I met a lot of people where I knew we were just wasting a whole lot of money. But then the uh, question is the ratio when we're talking about the amount, the sheer amount of people who would uh, belong to prison when we talk about instituting policies that would also make it easier for them to avoid prison then like we talked before uh i completely feel horrible for the people who end up being victims of the system that have not committed any crime but for the people who have what's the alternative method given the people that we have right now uh who deal with these issues like sean curious what you think well i i just want to point out that you know during covid like 2020 new york city saw a 47 percent increase in homicide like there was a dramatic mm. jump in crime in new york city it's undeniable it jumped the highest since i believe 2008 like you could check in all that in terms of raw numbers but we went from about 300 ish murders a year to 488 in a single year and we're now in and around the 400 level now whether that has to do specifically with reductions in people at rikers island nobody can say for sure because rikers island is just one jail it's a huge jail in the city of new york but there are policies in my opinion that were passed at the statewide level like bail reform that clearly like lead to this increase in crime like retail theft just to bring another category into it is up 77 percent since 2019 like and it's specifically in retail stores and part of the reason why is you arrest somebody 
you and they have to be released on that. They can't be held no matter how many times they reoffend because of statewide bail reform law. And there's other things that play into it as well, like raise the age. And a lot of these have consequences. And I'm yeah, not saying if a guy if a guy steals a two dollar bottle of deodorant, I don't want to spend a half a million dollars. That's all I'm well, saying. Well, this like, is how, like how long how long are you going to keep him locked up so that he doesn't steal another one? He's going to keep doing it every single time you let him out. He's going to do it until you get to the like root of the problem and it's it's just not going to happen at rikers well this is like uh like you know where where games get played for the for the with the numbers so rikers island had a budget that budget used to be according to you spread out over twenty thousand uh inmates however they reduced the population by half and then they reduced that from eleven thousand. you said that when you got to the point of about 3500 and now you're like wow look at how much they're spending per inmate it's well you wanted them to reduce the population and now you're throwing that ratio of what their budget was at the per inmate against them even though that was like no, your no, specific no, goal that's oversimplifying my analysis of the situation because i actually think that if you build i actually think the whole thing should shut down if you build a jail next to an airport you screwed up right from the beginning because you can't architecturally build a jail the way you need to to keep officers or inmates safe so, so my analysis of why Rikers shouldn't be open goes deeper and just reducing the population. Yes, you're running an island. You shouldn't be running an island with a bakery and with a laundry and everything with one way on and one way off. And I, there's just everything about the model is terrible. But what particularly bothers me about it is that it is a piece of land that was purchased from a guy who used to capture young black men and send them back to the slave holding South, Richard Riker. And that since then, literally from that poisonous seed. There's nothing good that's ever come from Rikers. I went to Rikers at 16 years old with $1,500 bail and got stabbed three times in my neck and my back before I went back to see a judge who was trying to teach me a lesson. And so when you talk about raise the age being problematic, I wish raise the age was in effect because I wouldn't have went to Rikers with $1,500 bail when I was 16 and learned that this is what New Yorkers have for 16 year olds and decide that when I go back to Rikers, I'm going to be the toughest guy there. And instead of being like you either have, you have two choices, predator or prey. That's the problem I have with mm -hmm. places. Like when I, when you talk about sending children to prison, you really don't give them much choices. So the second time I went, I was like, I'm not going to be prey. I'm going to be the predator. And that's, and places like Rikers are just built to foster those kinds of outcomes. So I don't think we're saying anything different. You're right. You could spend $500,000 if you get amazing outcomes, as far as I'm concerned. That's not why I'm making the argument about costs. But if you're going to say that a guy shoplifting should probably spend more time at Rikers, I just want you to know well, it's it's not just it's not just for a shoplifting incident. But when you have when we have right now 327 people, anybody could look this up that are responsible for 30 percent of the retail theft arrests. It's over six thousand arrests a year. The same people. I'm not saying you steal a candy bar. We throw you in Rikers Island. But if you do it 50 times, we can't just keep releasing you. Like, but if you do it 50 I, times, shame on us because we I, haven't figured out how to solve that. I, I figured out how to solve it. You prosecute retail theft seriously. Like, no, you can't you let this back. keep no. happening. You'd, you'd have a better outcome if you gave the guy $50,000, actually. No, absolutely not. Like, you I'm would. not going to reward people who are stealing. That just incentivizes more people to steal. And then you you still pay for it though. You're going to pay for it regardless. Yeah, but I'm trying to deter that from happening. Like, how's in that the working future. for you? How's that working for it's, you? It used to work when we had 77 percent less retail theft. No, what what happened is that guy who kept going back to prison and staying locked up ended up escalating his criminal behavior, and then you end up paying for it. 
can't. So anyway, these guys keep getting out and they're stealing the same day because a lot of times they don't even process them. They just release them after they do the fingerprinting in the station it's, and they steal again from the from this from the I, I other agree. store i agree that's what's happening i agree that that's what's happening the only thing the place where we're disagreeing is what should happen when they have him in custody him or her i just think we need a better outcome like you closed half of king's county in brooklyn like use that land to do something different with create like put people mm. in mental health put people well, he, like here's a here's a quick example so not that i agree with this system being applied to the united states but just as an example here you have bekele who is in El Salvador, who is their uh, new uh, leader there, what he did was that he went after everybody who had tattoos. And usually the people who have tattoos in El Salvador are gang members. Now, if the reality is that the level of competence of the police there, you know, the level of intelligence of the police is such that they're not going to be able to distinguish somebody with, uh, you know, gang tattoos versus somebody, you know, just says, I love mom or something, then you're going to have people who suffer, you know, who are innocent. But then the question is, can we compare that to, I know, Sean, like, what are the statistics if you were looking uh, at those statistics about El Salvador and their crime rate? So El Salvador is like a completely different is like a completely different animal. They had a much more dramatic problem and hence the more dramatic solution. That being said, it's a bit more sophisticated than going after tattoos. I mean, they were wiretapping people mm. with gang related communications. And like this is in the context of them actually being the most dangerous place in the world. Like they had the highest homicide rate in the world. The gangs were basically running the government. They had an issue where 70 percent of their businesses were being extorted by their gang by gangs where uh, they they had enough money to pay each gang member um i think double the agricultural wage of the minimum wage in el salvador just from what they were extorting in like petty 10 20 extortions from small businesses so bukele came into power and he was actually negotiating with the gangs but what they ended up doing was they would reduce violence and ramp it up in order to get more concessions. So they had essentially what was a terrorist attack in their capital where I believe 77 people were murdered over the course of a weekend. It was the most amount of people, I think, on that Saturday that were killed in a single day since the El Salvadorian Civil War. And these were like regular civilians. They would murder them and then fling their bodies like in the streets and on the Capitol and all that. So this was a response to that specific incident and their long history of basically gangs running their country. So like to say that that's applicable here, it's a, it's a bit, it, I don't think that's a hundred percent there. No, no, it isn't. It's a dramatic example, yeah, but the but reason to, why I bring it up is like what happened afterwards but, with the people. Yeah. There. Well, some of some, and a lot of the criticism of that, because it is like an authoritarian criminal justice policy without a doubt, they built a mega prison and all that. But a lot of the criticism of that doesn't, like understand how different it was there. Like these people would, uh, nobody could, nobody in the United States could imagine a, a gang uh, murdering a bunch of people in Washington, D.C., dumping the bodies on the White House lawn, and then the president coming out and giving that gang success, uh, a concessions. Like that was the system El Salvador was before. And they have improved dramatically. It's safer. El Salvador is now safer than most American cities. And people want to visit there now. It's shocking how much damage crime can do to an economy over there. So they they are looking and they are there are a lot of positive indicators from that. But I just don't think it's very applicable to here. 
No, but the other reason why I bring it up is if there is a gradient that we could take a look at of people not doing anything about the crime that's being caused and then throwing the kitchen sink at it, which is apparently what was going on in El Salvador. In your example, Sean, that heavy use of force did end up solving, you know, maybe for now, but did end up solving that particular problem that El Salvador had. So my question to uh, Glenn would be, if we for a second just ignore any moral arguments here and just say, all right, we want to have a high trust society where the people, especially like the old people and vulnerable people, uh, would be safe. Yes, it's going to result in people, you know, uh, being uh, taken in who don't deserve that. But if that method is applied to New York City, to other big cities in the United States, wouldn't that also work without any morality, just work in the sense of keeping that kind of order? I mean, I would point out, since I was talking about Norway earlier, that Norway experienced its worst terrorist moment at the beginning of reforming their prison system and had to make a hard decision about what to do and decided to keep going in the direction of reforming the system. And now they have much better, much lower recidivism rates than we do here. So there are moments where you can have drastic things happen that create a chilling effect with respect to how people feel about their safety and still continue to move in that, that direction and just decide that it took us decades to get here. It's going to take us decades to get out as opposed to crime went up last year. This is not working. Um, that's number one. Uh, number two, I would say that for me, it is, uh, it is not even about whether people end up in the system who don't belong there. I think that there are some people end up in the system that don't belong there. I'm suggesting that people do engage in behavior that violates the law and something should happen, but that the thing that we give people right now makes people feel safe, but that ultimately the, in the long term, people are no safer than, than they would have been uh, if you did nothing in some cases. I just think that the opportunities we have available when people get caught engaging in criminal behavior, like if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And right now incarceration is where we lean because if you have a person locked up, arguably they're not committing crime while they're locked up. I'm just saying it doesn't give us the long-term outcomes that we're looking for. And so we should do something different. I don't know if there's a gradient that makes sense because I don't think we'll ever be safe in the United States. If safety is what we're looking for, we're going to just go back to what we were doing in the 90s, which is a bunch of anecdotally driven criminal justice policies that'll get us right where we landed. Sean? Yeah. I, and uh, just two more points. So like the, the strategy in El Salvador, and this was the strategy in the United States, and I actually don't disagree that America has a worse recidivism rate and, and all those things about people go to go to prison in the United States. And the reason why, in part, is because the goal of prison is not to rehabilitate. It's not even really to punish. Like, there is a punitive element in it. It's just incapacitation. Just remove these people from society so they don't commit crimes in society. It's actually, like, a very, like, simple, rudimentary solution. And in El Salvador, it works because, first of all, they had an under-incarceration problem. Now, technically... They're incarcerating more of their population than us right now. But again, they had an enormous gang problem that's just not comparable to anything that we've seen in Europe. It's really not comparable to things that we've seen in the United States of America. Like even in the worst parts of the country, maybe specific neighborhoods in specific cities, 
like have have this kind of issue but even then the gangs aren't running the show to the extent that they were in el salvador also i do want to point out that uh people obsess about the tattoo thing and it's not just the tattoos but also in el salvador regular citizens don't get tattoos because there are tons of stories of tourists from america or whatever visiting there and they have a tattoo it's misidentified as the wrong gang tattoo in the wrong gang territory and they would get killed for that because there are two giant rival gangs in El Salvador, or they were until Bukele decimated them that, you know, like mistake this all the time. So ordinary people typically, for the most part, didn't have tattoos in the first place. Mm, very interesting. But uh, before I get as, to, as has yeah. been told to me, by the way, by a bunch of El Salvadorians, like this is what they were explaining to me because I was first put off by this like tattoo as suspicion thing. Interesting. Well, here's the big difference before I get it back to Glenn. I wanted to find out one other thing from you, Sean, which is we do have a different system here in the U.S. In the 90s with Giuliani, for instance, there were a lot of uh, people who were locked up for a pretty long time, as Glenn, you can uh, testify to. But the question is, does, does it necessarily have to be an either-or approach? Where, for example, I'm sure that there are many things that both you and Glenn can agree on when it comes to certain things that could be done in the local neighborhoods in terms of having a good father figure for a lot of the kids who are growing up in those areas, maybe even taking them out of the, those areas, you know, any kind of thing like that. But at the same time, could that be possible to do without first making sure that we would get back to the crime rates let's say in new york city that we had in the 90s like as a base to start with wouldn't that be a good idea to start with you know getting rid of the crime first and then working on the solution i'm pretty optimistic that a, a good portion maybe not all but a good portion of the higher rates of violent crime that we saw throughout the 80s and 90s were due to atmospheric lead amounts like lead in the gasoline so I'm actually hoping that there is never a point in America where we will get to the 90s and all that because there was just way more lead in the air and like we could see the results on lead exposure to, to young people. So I hope I, I, I know this is just maybe optimism because some places have passed their 90s points, which have way worse policy. New York's not even close to where it was that that is that it there there's like a cutoff. There's a cap to what we can go back to. But um, I, I so I don't I don't think that that is uh, is my number one concern until we get closer to that point. But uh, in terms of the policies of, of Giuliani, a lot of them did work. But I will say I want the focus to be put on violent and or repeat offenders. Like so I, I agree. I don't want to send somebody on their first offense. And, you know, it's like a petty theft or whatever to prison. I would like some alternatives. And one of the other things that I think we probably need to spend a lot of money on and when i say probably i mean definitely is mental health care because we do have a lot of homeless people that are suffering from mental illnesses and a lot of them keep repeat offending and then they get sent to jail and like any any like nerd or sci or, or scientist or psychiatrist or whatever will tell you that the environment of a jail even though a lot of them are retrofitted to be like mental health hospitals is like the worst thing that you can put for the many conditions that people live in. So I think we should open up the asylums again. Like, you know, obviously there are abuses in the asylums, but just dumping these people off the streets didn't make any sense. And we have to change the standard from a danger to yourself or others, which only typically is enforceable after you committed a crime or after you try to harm yourself 
to something in between that and the old standard, which was an inability to take care of yourself. So, yeah, we do have to care for a lot of people. I'm fine with alternatives for repeat offenders. I'm fine with even spreading inmates out that are like the worst of the worst so that they have a more comfortable existence in incarceration. Because it is true that 90% of the people that you send to prison are going to come out one day. Like they're not going to stay there forever. So you want to have the best possible chance for them to not repeat offend. But I still agree with incapacitating people that are repeat offenders. Before Glenn responds, just want to say once again, be sure to subscribe, add the like, add the bell, and also we are taking super chats towards the end, so be sure to send those super chats uh, here. So Glenn, yeah, any thoughts uh, on what Sean said? Sure, I, I think I agree with most of it. Um, I want to go back uh, a statement or two where he said that prison is mostly about incapacitation and not punishment. Um, that's not my experience. <laughs> when I ended up at Attica Correctional Facility, the correctional officer looked me in the face and said, you see that tree up there on that mountain? My grandfather planted that tree. This is my land. You can decide how you want to leave here on your feet or in a pine box. I really don't give a F. And then everything stemmed from there. And it was terrible. And you could behave and do all the right things and still get really harmed in prison by correction officers who have a ton of autonomy around how they treat people uh, who are in prison. And if you look at the Stanford experiment, you know, maybe it'll get you to better understand what I'm pointing to. But um, it was actually pretty punitive um, beyond just like I'm here to do my time. To, to be clear, I'm not saying it's not punitive. I'm saying the primary objective is just to incapacitate. Like if you read James Q. Wilson's uh, like writings on this and like his case for mass incarceration it's very much like he's like let's mechanically lower the crime rate by putting these people by removing these people from society so that they can't commit crime in society yeah no like everything else is a secondary consequence of that noted noted um mental health uh we have made it impossible to uh run community-based mental health facilities like we changed the law to get rid of the large asylums that were very abusive. Um, and unfortunately, Kennedy died before we put anything in his place. And right now, if you're running a facility of more than 14 uh, beds, you can't apply for federal funding and you can't run a facility with less than 14 beds, like it's an economy of scale. So we're in a position where it's really difficult to build anything community-based. And you're right, we've retrofitted our jails and prisons to be surrogate, uh, mental health facilities, except for wealthy people. There are institutions for wealthy. If you can afford it, you can find a place to send your family member. Um, so I agree, creating more community-based options. I don't know if I want to see what we had before, and I don't think that's what you're saying, but I do think we should change the IMD exclusion to uh, open up the door to more community-based facilities. Um, I would say uh, in response to what else you've said, let me think, what did I miss here? Um, violent crimes, mental health. I agree that people with the most serious crimes, because we don't have any other solutions right now, even if it's mental health related, they need to be taken out of society until they're no longer um, a harm to themselves or others. And I would say that the ACLU is totally wrong on getting in the way of institutionalizing people who we know might engage in violent behavior because we have enough evidence of it. I, like, I, you know, I'll never be that woke, that's for sure. Um, so I think we can agree there that the Bazelon Center and ACLU and others are, they have the luxury and the privilege of being able to say we shouldn't lock people up 
or incapacitate them based on mental health. I think that for the safety of society, we should be able to do that. So I think we agree there too. So surprisingly, I think I agree on most of what you just said. Mm. Can, can I ask you a question, uh, Glenn? Uh, yeah. So you seem, you, you've been through the system. Uh, you're successful now. So there, there's some like rehabilitation from like past behavior. I, I just want to ask because one of the, like everybody, I think everybody's actually in favor of rehabilitation when you break down what it is, which is you violent person, criminal person go somewhere and then they come back productive member of society. It's just, we don't know how to do that. Yeah. Like, what is your story or like how you got from A to B? Is it the education program that you went through or something before or even something from within you that inspired like the change yeah i appreciate the question i'd say it's a few things uh one is the education program but not as a credential and a tool to get a job but as a way of repositioning yourself in society like i got turned down for 50 jobs in 30 days when i came home but after an education that helped me understand religion sociology psychology all those sorts of things. I just felt like I was a different person. I felt like I was here for a different reason and I had something larger to accomplish. And if someone didn't hire me because of a felony conviction, they were missing out. And clearly they were in the long term. So the, the, the education and then also the, uh, you know, the camaraderie and the things that happen when you're at school, right? Like, you know, I didn't want to go to school in prison, but you got to admit, like you make friends in a way that you wouldn't otherwise when you're at an academic institution. Mm. And sometimes those friendships become a network that feels different than the one you had before and becomes a network you take with you for the rest of your life. So I still talk to a lot of the guys I went to college with, even if it was in prison. Um, Second thing I would say is money. I just want to be clear, like money was a game changer. I grew up poor. Like it's one thing to be poor. I've been to Mumbai, India. I've seen people poor and really happy. It's another thing to be poor here in the United States where your value is closely tethered to material things. And so if you're stark poor in the United States and you're being told every day, bombarded with the idea that if you don't own stuff, you're not worth anything, then you're trying to do everything you can to extricate yourself from poverty. That's what drove me the whole time. Every time I pulled out a gun on someone, it was about getting out of poverty. I don't care what anyone says. Like I was, I still have moments where something goes wrong in my business and I get into a poverty mindset. Oh my God, you're going to be poor. When I know I'll never be poor again. Like I have way too many people in my phone uh, to be poor ever again. And at the same time, that has not gone away. The idea of being poor in the United States is scary as hell. And I think I was doing everything I can to run from that. And now that has changed. You know, I have security. And then lastly, I would say, you know, I just want to be clear, like I'm so far away from poverty, like the network I have around me. Like when I think of when I was poor, there was no one to pick up the phone and call and say, I need help. I need support. I need, I need a lawyer. I need insurance. I, I can do all those things now. I have a network around me in a way that I never would have uh, during poverty. So um, I don't know if that answers your questions, mm-hmm. but those no, are- it, it does. I, I just want to know. Um, so you're like the, you, you wanted to own things. Is that like property or like certain, you know, I wanted, like- I wanted security. I wanted the idea of never, like I wanted, I wanted, it's funny because now that I have enough money to buy anything, I really don't want anything. That's the, right. that's the, that's the interesting part. I got a nice car, but beyond that, I live in a 530 square foot apartment like most other crazy New Yorkers that I paid way too much money for. Um, so yeah, but, but like I said, you know, it's just a mentality of like, if I don't have nice clothes, I'm not worth anything. If I don't have nice shoes, if I don't have a nice car, but I was chasing those things until I finally made enough money and realized that those things actually didn't matter. Um, so it's not that it was right that I was chasing money. I just want you to know the mindset right. that had me. I, I, 
I'm just I'm just curious because like a lot of like Asian Americans, for like example, like and you mentioned uh, Indian uh, specifically, like they grow up poor, but like the way that they put that drive is to go into education and and whatnot in order to make money. Like I, you know, I talk I I don't I don't like to use the term poor for me because I feel like it it understates the position that I grew or it overstates the position that I grew up in because my mom worked really hard. Uh, you know, we had to move in with relatives when she didn't have it, when she was broke and she had to go to school and all that. That's what she went to the army for. But like that anger of like not having things like that's what motivated me to like become a content creator. And you're right. Like once and I'm not nearly as successful as you are, but once you be like hit a point where you feel comfortable, you realize you're like, why was I so pissed off all that time? Like, you know, like, <laughs> why, why did I feel like I had to constantly do that? And you get, you know, like little shocks mm -hmm. here and there that make you like, it keeps you motivated and all that. But I'm just curious if it was like something that redirected that motivation or you think it's something like from within you or just or, um, and, and my other question about the education program is that did you have to meet like a, a minimum behavior requirement while in prison in order to get into that program first? Yeah, you'd get you wouldn't get anywhere near the college program if you weren't doing the right thing. Like if you have tickets, you can get in. But I will say this just so you hear it. You said that, you know, uh, punishment wasn't the primary and I pushed back. The reason I pushed back is that if a correction officer wanted to make sure you didn't end up in the college program, they'd show up at your cell with a razor blade and say they found it in your plant. Right. So I just want to be clear, like, you know, there are people who didn't get in because of their behavior. And then there are people who didn't get in because they have a record in there for something they might not have even done. Just want to make that clear. Right. So it is, you know. Um, and then the other side of, I mean, I went to Mumbai and saw poverty and was like, why have I ever complained about being poor? Like you have an air conditioner sticking out the window, you're not exactly poor. Um, and so, yes, but so it's a combination of uh, how we define poor here in the United States, um, but also how we define worth. Like that's just the other side of it that I couldn't shake loose until I really saw what poverty looked like in another country. Um, that was really helpful for me to like change my perspective by visiting places outside of the US. And then I'd say the light bulb just sort of went off when I felt safe. Like I can buy safety now. Right. Like I like my car is registered to my business and therefore the police just don't mess with me. When they run my plates, they're like, oh, he owns a business, leave him alone. Like there's just little things that are in my life now that make me feel safer, um, where I realized that having resources was really about ultimately, at least for now, for me, safety and not, you know, value, self-worth. Right. Hmm. Well, yeah. Well, I have uh, the following question then to uh, pick up on this. When it comes to the people who were around you in prison who did not follow your path, would you also say that for whether it's police, whether it's people who would say, you know, like we should uh, put them in prison to keep them away from us, that there is a valid reason why they would be scared of the people who would not be like you and the people who would just like keep on being very violent and agitated. And, you know, if you like look at them the wrong way, then they could, you know, uh, uh, throw a haymaker your way like you would say that that is a legitimate concern that people have. And then the question to follow up on that is, at what age in your experience would you say that starts solidifying, not for, let's say, the exceptions, but for the majority, as far as like, yeah. is it six years old, seven years old, so on and so forth? Yeah, to answer the first part of your question, I mean, I lived in Harlem for about 16 years now. 
I'd say for about 12 of those years, I didn't even lock my door. Anyone could have walked into my apartment for 12 of those years. When COVID happened, when crime went up, when violent crime went up, I started locking my door. Like, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> like, there's people out there that commit violent crime, and it is hard to get them to desist from that behavior. But I will say this about prison, and again, I don't know how this lands for you if you guys already know this, and it doesn't matter, or if you're hearing it for the first time, but everything about everything you do to survive in prison are the things that will allow you to fail in society. You don't get a chance to show your emotions. You don't get a chance to process the behavior you engaged in. You don't talk about the crime. Like there's so many things about prison that are antithetical to you never doing it again, just for you to survive. Like literally survival in prison requires you to not process the behavior that you engaged in. So that's part of the trouble I have with the idea that incarceration is going to get us out of it. At the same time, I understand there are people who need to be incapacitated and we don't have a better opportunity to deal with it right now. And, and prison is what it is. Like I've, you know, I've definitely landed there. I don't think I understood the second part of your question. Sure. So when it comes to the age of somebody who let's say grew up in a troubled home, maybe didn't have a father, didn't have a father figure around at what age would you say the experiences on average, you know, not saying the exceptions, at what age would you say the experiences of that sort end up solidifying a particular mentality uh, within young people? Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say for me, uh, going from a child to becoming a man was the moment where whatever the streets taught me became who I am for a really long time. Um, and the human brain doesn't fully develop till 24, right? So all sort of stimuli that comes in before then are part of what shapes us into who we end up being. Luckily, people desist from criminal behavior in their mid to late 30s because they have less of an appetite for risk and they don't want to use, lose more years of their life. And I think that we forget that there's an opportunity around that time. But I do believe that when you're going from a child to an adult, um, particularly your uh, teenage years, um, you're really impressionable and whatever happens there stays with you. Although I think there's research that shows that children who experience rape and sexual abuse and beatings and so on as young as six and seven um, turn out to engage in criminal behavior as adults. And then the last thing I'd say is I got some colleagues now where I'll say something to them. It'll be triggering in a way that will sort of shock the hell out of me. And it'll be because I said something that lent it to, like right now I'm doing some crisis management with a nonprofit where like a board member yelled at an executive director, a person who makes almost 200 grand a year, is poised, has a law degree, everything else. And this guy has totally lost it because his dad used to yell at his mother and beat his mother. And that stuff is still with him. And everything else about him, you'd be like, oh, it's, this stuff is pretty well put together. So uh, back to Sean, uh, where would you personally uh, draw the line when it comes to, we were talking before about uh, people who end up robbing stores on a very increased basis now. Where would you uh, say, okay, now we have to start bringing in more police, we have to start making all these arrests when it comes to not even like the violent crimes that I think both of you guys agree on here, but about those, you know, second order things that are nevertheless affecting society right now? Well, I, I just want to double up on this point that he made about your brain not being fully developed till you're 24, 25. Like your peak offending years, and this is for young men because young men are the ones committing the crimes. Like, let's be clear about that. Are something like 14 to 24. If you can, if you can get a young man through that time period, 
without you know without going to prison or anything like that but again like you know if they're committing crimes i still want to like serious crimes i still want them to go to prison or or jail whatever then they're going to be fine like the chances of somebody starting criminal activity at age 28 or 29 extremely low so like that is an important period of time where you know you want to get them like focused on education you want to get them into a university or a trade program or something like that but as far as the cutoff i think if somebody shows a propensity to reoffend which is you know they keep committing the same crime and by the way these crimes escalate like there's a bunch of these people that are committing petty shoplifting and nobody's actually trying to deter them in a store then they get confronted by a security guard and then all of a sudden they stab shoot or whatever kill that security guard like this has happened a lot so like um you know not a lot proportional to theft but like this like i've covered many cases about this so you want to get them you want to get them off before you want to get them out off the streets before they they commit that escalated level of crime because if there's no consequences for behavior then that behavior is going to continue if you're doing something for an instant gratification and there's no deterrent then that's just going to keep happening now as far as prisons being punishment yes they are incredibly punitive but i'm just saying as a like structured goal of why we put people in prison in the most rudimentary way um, that number one goal is uh incapacitation now guards are horrible stanford prison experiment is real 100 of people abuse their power in that when they had absolute power over over not not 99% so yeah they are definitely punitive there definitely are bad corrections officers and there's like abusive people in the prisons too and he is right like the way that you survive in prison is the exact opposite of what you we want you to do when you get out of prison which is kind of hard because people don't flip uh, on a switch like that like even when we train people to be in our military and they go overseas we expect them to come back and like come into civilian mode and guess what they don't function that way like that's not a normal thing to ask so yeah like mm-hmm. that that's definitely real too but yeah i would i i don't know i hate numbers so i hate like dumb policies that are just like three strikes and you're out get it because it sounds like baseball but <laughs> i think like if you if you're continually reoffending, like i can't stand seeing these people with a hundred arrests and they're still being released on bail reform like I want the judge to have judgment in these cases. And in New York, for some reason, our judges don't have judgment. And by the way, judges aren't perfect either. But like, I just want some judgment. Even even if we had a reform that was similar to New Jersey, where they use an algorithm to give a score, and then the judge makes it a judgment based on that, I think that would be better than our system in New York State right now, where we list these crimes and say, no matter how many times you reoffend. We're not going to hold you pre-trial. Like, I think that's just dumb. I don't know if I'm going to argue against that. Um, I think that uh, bail reform uh, needed to be tweaked uh, after the first iteration of it. Um, But I don't think you go from nothing's working to prison because I think even swift and certain punishment would be better than going from nothing to prison. I agree. People doing the same thing over and over is annoying and will escalate. I escalated. I went from shoplifting to sticking people up in the street to sticking up stores to sticking up the Javits Convention Center to robbing jewelry stores. It just got worse and worse. It just kept escalating. But the intervention did not have to be prison. The truth is, by the time I got the Rikers, like for real, I was like, oh, wow, I don't need too much of this to realize that I'm going to chill out. But to me, the college opportunity could have happened so much 
you know, when I was so much younger that I think it would have saved everybody a ton of money and a ton of heartache. Well, when you're talking about that old example of when you're a hammer, everything is a nail, what exactly is required for people to do good and to help people who are in your situation out as opposed to, you know, going into hammer time? Because yeah. something you're saying right now is something I think about when it comes to if only we were all psychic and could read each other minds, then we can figure out a way out of this mess. But the problem is that most people are not going to be that bright, both like the offenders and those punishing the offenders. And so we have to unfortunately look at the horrible choices in front of us and pick the one that's going to result in the good enough of a deterrent to stop a lot of these crimes from occurring. So while ideally, yes, if only we had, you know, really smart people that were within our institutions that can figure these things out, that would be great. But so far, I'm seeing on one hand, like an activist class that's trying to get as many people out of prison, regardless of what's going on. And then on the other hand, people who just want to, uh, you know, drop the hammer down. And I'm thinking, okay, well, which one is going to result in my grandma or somebody like that, you know, walking down the street and being safe? I, the, yeah. The, yeah. I just want to jump like real quick because you mentioned deterrence. Like, yeah, we love to think that we're deterring people. And like I've said deterrence throughout this because it can work to a certain degree, but it has to be a swift and certain punishment like that. You feel like you're going to you're going to face if you commit a crime in order to actually have deterrence. Like most people, when they commit a crime, think they're not going to get caught. So like the mm. deterrence factor doesn't happen. So. Again, even though we like to say this long sentence is for a deterrence purpose, yeah, like we're, we're, we're literally just go back to Wilson's writings. Even that is like nonsense. We're, we're just trying to house people away. Like that's like the only strategy. And it's really dumb. But like sometimes dumb strategies can work to a certain extent. But like deterrence is like, well, it's not, is it's there not is really there something much. that we can do to encourage the kind of deterrence that does work? Or does my point still stand about people in general being so dumb that they're either going to go for, you know, putting all the problems in the closet, or releasing I, all the problems and not having I, like, I, any kind I don't of, know, if yeah. this is, I, I'll definitely I'll definitely let Glenn answer in, in a second. But I don't know if this is deterrence related. But one of the things that we did in the 90s, and this was just punitive uh was bill clinton signed a signed a piece of legislation that made pell grants not available if you're in prison and the idea was why should these prisoners go get free college if uh, or discounted college if um people have to pay for it on the outside look it's a pell grant that they're like now valued at five grand back then they were valued at like three grand or something like that this is not a big deal like i would be totally fine with reinstituting that so that people can go and get an education on the cheap in fact i recommend if you're out there in the world then go to your state schools go to your city schools like you know yeah. i got an education from cuny and i'm not in crippling horrible debt because of yeah. it and i recommend other people do the same but yeah, i would reverse good, that the good, the good news is we got it reversed two years ago oh so yeah, yeah that was a win i did a lot of work with dallas pell the daughter of senator claiborne pell to do that even though i didn't benefit from it i came the year after um but this wealthy philanthropist paid me to go to college thanks to him um but i realized it was such a win for me that i wanted to open it up for other people it took us two and a half two decades to get it done but we got it done um so back to this conversation the question that you asked um about not having other solutions i really would uh, urge your listeners to think about what is the distinct, like I live in a city where you cross a street 
and safety increases exponentially. Like you get to certain streets in New York City and you cross into another neighborhood and you get totally different outcomes. So yeah, right now it feels like prison is all we have for people who don't do the right thing. But like, let's ask the other side of the question. Why are there other groups of people in other communities not engaging in this kind of behavior? And they don't have more police officers. They don't have more correction officers. They don't have more probation officers. They have more schools. They have more education, more health care, more opportunities, more workforce, more trainings, and so on. I just would like to see us deploy those things probably much more so than we deploy um, prisons. Uh, in fact, you might have saw for my birthday a couple of days ago, I started to go. Happy fund. birthday. Thank you. Happy I appreciate birthday. that. I'm 26 for the 27th time. Um, and uh, and I'm raising money to literally go in front of one of these uh, nonprofits and give it away to formerly incarcerated people who are exiting those programs. I'm not a huge fan of most nonprofits. I think some of them are a huge waste of money, sometimes worse than government. Um, but I do believe in giving people cash. Um, I actually believe it can be a game changer. There's, there could be at least one person leaving one of those reentry programs that's so broke that he will commit a crime when he or she gets on the train that day. And if me handing them a hundred bucks is going to change that, to me, that's got to be as good as waiting for him to commit that crime and sending him him or her to Rikers. So yeah, I, I just think that we have to uh, explore solutions that feel different than what we're doing now for the majority of people who end up in the system and give it a chance, like give it a chance to have a different outcome than what we have now. Although I know, again, when people are scared, they just have a hard time with the idea that people are going to get hurt in the interim. But you know what? There's never going to be a criminal justice system that works to the point where no one gets hurt. Right. Yeah. And I, I would say like, you know, even though I cover, I try to cover in terms of crime stories, stories that are impacts of direct policy. So like, not just like any random story, because a lot of people will look at like the news media, find a single instance of like the most horrific crime but that could be indicative. Like the worst crime that could ever happen in your city can happen in a year where your city's at a 20 year low for criminality. So like, I, you know, I think it is important to contextualize this. And like New York City is still, even though crime has gone up a lot, the safest big city in the United States of America. Like, yeah. like the, the ref, like whether you like them or not, the reforms and policies of the nineties did turn this city around to a certain extent. Something happened in this city because we went from on par with Chicago to now like six times less in terms of homicide rate. Like it, it's, it's actually insane. They have more than double the murders in Chicago than we have in the city of New York. And they have a third of the population. Like, so there's definitely some policies that are, are what you call it, that, that did have an impact, but yeah, you can go overboard. People can panic too quickly. I like the idea of waiting a little bit. Like if, if murder would have spiked, like 5% or 10% in the city of New York post these reforms, I'd have been like, that is a normal variance that like can happen year to year. We have a city of 8.5 million. The reason I'm concerned is because it's the largest spike in history. And like, you have a whole bunch of factors, including by the way, something that's not related to policy specifically, which is just a bunch of officers went in retire into retirement because they thought the climate for law enforcement wasn't good. So, like, you would have these beat cops that are just removed from law. And this is a nationwide issue. And, like, you know, officers are not great at, at, um, at uh, they're not going to deter a bunch of crime. But I think the Kansas City experiment shows that if you put them in a certain area, when people see officers, I mean, it's kind of logical. They won't commit crimes in front of those officers. Now, there's a bunch of violent crimes that occur 
behind closed doors in homes and all that that they have no impact on when they're walking in front of your street but like we we should we we got to work on getting our police force back up i actually think that deterrence is more important than locking up people afterwards like i don't don't disagree with that i think having officers on the street as long as they're not violating people's civil rights it's not a bad thing Hmm. what do you think of the uh, broken glass policy that giuliani enacted back in the uh, 90s i think broken windows was just broken windows Yeah. yeah it was just i think it was I think it was a way to go into communities and do what he wanted to do regardless. Uh, I'm just not a fan of it. Even if it works, I'm not a fan of it. I think that it just punishes you for living in a certain zip code. And I know a lot, like myself, not, I don't even have to say I know a lot of people. I can't tell you how many times I've been thrown up against a wall in search for no good reason. I remember moving to Harlem and getting thrown up against the wall and getting pulled over within 24 hours only to go on the roof of the condo that I lived in because I was at a different point in my life to see the police officers hanging out up there on the lawn chairs and chilling out. And I was like, you're breaking the law more than I am right now. Like, why are you the one searching me? Uh, for broken windows, I think I th- I th- it's, it's uh, I, I'm generally in favor of broken windows because the basic premise of it is that environment impacts behavior. And I do believe in that. Right. However... There are points where you can go overboard. And I think under Bloomberg, even more so than Giuliani, like there was just an expansion in in certain programs that are not actually broken windows, but they're related, like stop and frisk that just piss people off. So like the idea of broken windows, the reason it's called that is like if a window smashed out in an area and nobody fixes it, eventually people are going to throw rocks through those other windows. Right now, a lot of people don't believe that. Because they think I'm not I'm not the kind of guy who's going to smash a window. Listen, when I was a kid, I totally would have done that. But like, think about it like this. If you took a bunch of garbage and you just dumped it in a pile in a park and nobody cleaned it up for a week and you came back, that pile would be 10 times the size because people think in their head, that's where I throw my trash. So the idea of broken windows initially, which was to target not every low level crime as it's been represented. And by the way, officers are now doing was to target low-level crimes that might lead to bigger crimes. So a big one, and this came from Bratton, was fare evasion. People jumped the turnstiles, and this guy figured, hey, you know what? Maybe the people doing robberies in the cities aren't paying in, in in Manhattan aren't paying for the subway. So let's actually enforce this little crime, run people for warrants, and then see what happens. And it turns out when that was instituted, when Bratton was the head of the MTA police. One out of every seven people they stopped for fare evasion was had a felony warrant attached to them. Mm-hmm. And this was initially, and this also led to the downstream effect of reducing thefts in the train. So it was like a specific crime that had a downstream effect that you should be targeting. As for stop and frisk, when they would stop question and frisk and they were stopping way less people, the whole point of that was not even to recover guns. It was just to deter people from carrying illegal guns. I think that's a good policy. That being said, when you stop 800,000 people or whatever crazy number Bloomberg stopped, you're obviously not even remotely using reasonable suspicion. Like you're just ramping up the numbers. And it turns out you don't need to do that. Like Giuliani's maximum, and this probably was a high number, was 90,000 people. We didn't get like that much better yield under Bloomberg than under Giuliani for increasing it. But you did piss a lot of people off. And the caveat I would always give for any kind of broken windows 
or any kind of uh, comstat related policing where you send police to a targeted area is you have to remember why you're there. If you're there because there's a higher rate of homicide, a higher rate of robbery or whatever, then don't go look at people's registration tickets and write them tickets for registration. Like don't nitpick them on how they parallel parked and all the things that piss people off in the community because that's not why you're there. Like a lot of times people end up hating the cops for like the pettiest things. And the reason the cop and and part of that is because the cops are there for something else. But since they're there, they're like, oh, I might as well write this ticket. I might as well do this and that. And then people feel like every little aspect of their lives is being police. And that really pisses them off. And if you happen to be in a black neighborhood, they're going to feel like that's racial, like you're ticketing me because I'm black. And like, if I were in that position, look, I was wrongfully arrested when I was 12. If I told you the circumstances about a black child, people would assume that that was racist. But like, I felt like I was being personally screwed over and I don't even have the racial angle to like fall back on. So like, I could only imagine how I would feel if I were a black kid in America and this happened in the, in the context of my parents constantly getting tickets for every petty thing that just doesn't happen in other neighborhoods. So I would really harp on these officers that are supposed to be working on these specific crimes to give people a little bit of a break on on the tickets and whatnot because i think a warning will turn somebody's view around for the cops if you get pulled over for some dumb stuff that you're doing and you get a warning from an officer you'd be like this is yeah. the greatest thing ever so like that, those little breaks matter but yeah, overall, I, I, I've, I've been i've been pulled over a bunch of times when i was younger i remember one time i got pulled over and the cop walked over and i said why are you stopping me and he actually answered me. He was like, this is a high prostitution area and we're stopping every car that pulls over on this block. And I was like, I mean, it was such a game changer. Like that was the only time a police officer literally answered that question and the answer made sense. And everything else that happened in that process just didn't matter. I was able to go along with my business rest of the day, not even thinking about that interaction. Yeah, yeah. honesty matters too. Yeah, it all comes down also, I think, to having a closeness with the police as far as there being like a local neighborhood police as opposed to there being, you know, some uh, alien presence. I think that's also going to uh, matter for a lot of these things, especially when the police build up some kind of a repertoire with the uh, with the neighborhood. Uh, but I don't really think that that situation we're in right now, which brings again this idea of as far as saving people, uh, especially the vulnerable people goes, we talked before about El Salvador. Obviously, that's a very extreme example given the circumstances Sean talked about. But then the question still is, when it comes to people who have some kind of a very powerful deterrent in, let's say, various places in the third world, for instance, where you would have some kind of a dictator. And again, I am like the last person to advocate for a dictatorial system. What I want to do is figure out people's psychology here and try and understand what would be the equivalent of, let's say, again, going back to Gangs New York, which we talked about, that scene where uh, Bill the Butcher put his prized um, clock or like the pocket watch on top of the pole, you know, in the five points, knowing that nobody is going to dare take that watch away from that place because they know what the repercussions are. And I feel like looking at history, what ends up happening in most of society throughout the world is that in places that do enforce like this very strict iron fist order, then everybody's just scared to death of, you know, like a, picking like a candy bar off the shelf. And obviously those are extreme examples, but then 
if those are the kind of things that end up working to keep other people safe, what can we possibly learn from that kind of psychological uh, psychological state where you are that scared to pick up, you know, like a little bowl of candy because, you know, like, oh, for example, like there was that video recently of this family that was picking the Halloween candy uh, from uh, from the family. And instead of taking like one piece, they took all the pieces. And not that I'm comparing that to a lot of the uh, crime that's occurring in the cities, but if it's the same kind of mentality of, oh, if I can get away with this, then why not? Versus for that same person, if we're not talking about reform yet, if we're not talking about there being a good person in their lives who can, you know, uh, get them to think about this another way. If we're just talking about people as they are right now, would there have to be some kind of a... Uh, some kind of a deterrent in their minds that it's so extreme. If I pick up one more piece of candy, then something really, really horrible is going to happen, so I won't. I mean, you said you were born in Russia, right? Born in Russia in St. Petersburg, but I came here when I was four, back when uh, it was the bad old days in New York City as far as the crime rate. My grandma, she got mugged while walking, uh, you know, in the streets of uh, Brooklyn. So, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry that happened to your grandmother. Um, I'm having a hard time processing a question that is around how much fear do we have to instill in human beings for them to not engage in criminal behavior as opposed to uh, I'll take us full circle in the conversation. Norway, yeah. a very wealthy country where people actually really engage in that behavior for a different reason because they live a pretty comfortable life. They know they're going to have a safe place to rest at the end of the day. They know they're going to have access to education. There's a bunch of things. I'm not, I'm not a socialist, but at the same time, if if you're going to spend the money, you, you get a chance to decide where you're going to mm. spend it. One, one quick addition to that, though, with Norway, from what I've read about Norway and Sweden and a lot of these Nordic countries, they didn't even have serfdom, unlike, let's say, places in Europe, especially unlike Russia, because you were talking about, you know, me growing up in Russia. Russia is also one of those places where there's a lot of corruption with the police, a lot of crime. Uh, if you're associated with the government, you can literally get away with murder when it comes to uh, those criminal activities. So my point here with Norway is that, from what I understand, it's an incredibly high-trust society initially. So when you have those kind of uh, relationships when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to crime and punishment, then it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing, right? If the society already is at that point, has been at that point for like hundreds and hundreds of years, then yeah. it's going to be way easier for that kind of system to be implemented. But I don't know. I'm curious what you guys but, think. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a... I'm a person who deals in hope. And so I think hope is important. And so I get what you're saying that this country for a bunch of reasons, mm. um, it's hard to imagine us having a justice system that focuses on trying to meet people's needs as opposed to punish their behaviors. But I just got to believe there's going to be something better for us in the long term. And I'm willing to know that I'll be dead and gone before we get there, but that I'm, I'm interested in moving the ship one or two degrees so that it ends up someplace different. Mm. Sean, any comments? And then we're going to go to Super Chats, by the way. I would say that there's there's a few categories of societies that we we could probably think of. So Norway would be like the high trust society, right? Like, And in high trust society, you don't need strong deterrence and all that because like the way that – the thing that stops people from offending in terms of crime, there's like three things. There's fear of consequences. That's the bottom. There's fear of social consequences, which is whether or not your community will look down upon you if you're committing crime. That's the next rung on the ladder. 
But the, the thing that will prevent you from committing crime the most is if you believe that it's morally wrong to do so. Right. So if you have that belief in the society and the system or whatever, that trust, that's going to be the strongest deterrent for you. So they got that in spades in Norway. Now, as for what you're talking about, where can you get to the point where through fear you can achieve a similar result? It's like you can, but do you do you want to? So like Singapore, there's a there's a story that I saw where it's like, um, you know, an American tourist is shocked that there's a fifteen thousand dollar bike that is left on the street, not locked. And like nobody's afraid of it being taken. It's like, yeah, well, Singapore is a police state. Like you take that at your own risk. Like they don't allow you to chew gum in Singapore. If you have an apartment building, like they're very concerned about like making sure every neighborhood or every apartment building represents the demographics of the country. So they'll actually dictate who could live there in like an affirmative action style situation so that every and not even affirmative action. It's just like. They want it to be representative of the community. And most people wouldn't want that level of social control in their lives. And there's a bunch of other things that they do in Singapore that would not be ideal. I mean, they do execute people for for drug dealing. So it's like, yeah, you could get there in terms of fear, but like it's going to be a police state and it's going to be like the streets will be clean. Sure. But like that, that's not a society that most Americans would tolerate. So like what I think I think a better or stronger goal is to raise the trust in in our society or raise the trust within certain groups in our society because one of the things that you notice is like if you think about like why asian people are successful or like koreans like i I live in a korean neighborhood why chinese people are successful why jewish people are successful is they have a lot of high trust within their community like i'm irish and puerto rican i'm not going to go anywhere irish or puerto rican neighborhood and get people from within the community to pool money together to invest in a business just on the trust we don't have that it's just not not something that we're about but like my korean friends they can call a cab that like one of these unlicensed cabs and they'll and if they speak korean over the phone like they got two sets of cars they got the cars with the uh with the t with the tlc license and the ones without the license. So when they come, when they call and speak Korean, they send the ones without the license because they're like, oh, our Koreans aren't going to snitch on each other. Uh, I have friends that are Chinese. When they go to Chinatown, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. If they speak Chinese to the person, they're not going to get charged tax because there's yes. like a little connection. I had, a, I had a Chinese girlfriend back in the day that happened yeah. with like a pair of scissors. And I was amazed. What is going on here? But what like, is the secret world? Uh, but it's like that they it's like that they trust each other and like uh and you see that when they're starting a business or whatever and the thing is this actually creates like external like hatred of these groups because they're like oh they're coordinating and it's like shadowing conspiracy it's like no like there is trust it's like the idea like i know where you come from i know how you were raised i know your values and all that a lot of communities don't have that so like yeah. If if there is a way to kind of build up these communities to where they could first trust each other and then trust the broader society, I think that would be great. That's mm. how you get to a Norway here. Like yeah. here. before so, super Sean, chats. So yeah, Glenn, final comments before yeah, super chats. Sean, in the middle of that was a really interesting conversation just now. But in the middle of that anecdote, you literally talked about someone breaking the law over yeah. and over. And two, you didn't two times, say two times actually. Okay, okay, two times. No, unlicensed yeah. cab and the other one, yeah. You don't want to lock them up, do you? Uh, no. Well, <laughs> I, I actually think ta- cab licensing is bad, and uh, I I don't like taxes. But that being said, you know, you listen. If they get audited, <laughs> that's not my business. 
Okay, all right, noted. I, look, I'm not saying they're perfect. I live in a building that was built by a very shady construction firm that, like, clearly was on these handshake deals. And, like, when I started looking in the, uh, like, looking for studs in the walls and noticed that none of this was aligned, I was like, okay, maybe maybe we need to crack down on these people <laughs> in some in some regards. Like, but, you know. It's good to know where you draw the line. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this guy, by the way, Eli, the people's guy who I follow on YouTube now. He goes all uh, Glenn, are you familiar with Eli by any chance? I don't believe so. He very interesting dude. Uh, he goes all around. Uh, uh, he's uh, from Dominican Republic. He goes all around New York City and he does these First Amendment audits where he just starts videotaping inside the location of like a hotel or something. And then the people usually come out and say, no, you can't do that. And he can do that. It's his full right to videotape whatever's going on. And they can like, you know, put privacy screens if they want to. But the reason why I mentioned that is there was a story where he was in Yonkers and there was this uh, plumbing company that was doing some things and they started getting into his face. And he started to figure out like, hey, they're probably doing something illegal right now they're not supposed to be doing this and i looked that company up and they're like from um uh from uh what's that uh country that had the war milosevic uh, i'm trying to remember the name right now uh Austria? used to be you no, used to be yugoslavia but then oh kosovo so they're from Kosovo originally. And that kind of like makes me think what Sean was talking about. Like you would have certain enclaves that would do things on the DL because they trust each other. But the founding fathers, from what I'm understanding, their whole idea with America is we don't want factionalism. We want people to be able to get to the level where they're able to trust each other as fellow Americans. And that's kind of like the ideal that I think, you know, regardless of any of these like little things of taxation and stuff, that's something that we should at least try to make an honest effort to get to but yeah glenn any final uh comments and then we're going to super chats i think the founding fathers didn't realize what the internet would do to that vision <laughs> i think we're more tribal than we've ever been I, yeah i think i think you can have broader trust in a society if you have like I, i'll use puerto rican half of my family if you have trust within within like your ethnic group like it kind of sprouts out, if that makes sense. I think there has like, to be some shared identity. Like black yeah. folks, unfortunately, because of what we've been through in this country, don't feel connected to each other in a way that I think would engender the kind of trust we're talking about. It's unfortunate and maybe we'll get there, but that's a big part of why the trust is broken in our community. Well, and, we have a, a couple then, of super chats about that, it, yeah. It can work with it can work with black people. We see this with Africans. Like, uh, you know, if you're from like, the Caribbean and all that, they can develop that trust and it leads yeah. to success in the United States of America. So it is, I think, crucial, but it's hard to, it's hard to manufacture it. If you don't trust people that are, that, that you're like associated and live in your neighborhood, like it's hard to say, trust them. Yep. Mm. All right, guys, super chat time. And by the way, before the super chats, once again, everybody smash that like button, smash that subscribe button, click the bell. The bell is very important. Plus, I see all of you people watching, not enough likes. You got to get the like ratio up. That is very important. And lastly, patreon.com slash break the rules. Become a patron today. You're not going to regret it. You're going to have a lot of good stuff there for the $5 patrons. You're going to have access to the Discord server, certain locations that uh, other 
otherwise they're not permitted for the non-patrons to access. You're also going to have MP3s of the episodes after they come out. Uh, we are doing more of these uh, regular Patreon-only events. In fact, I'm going to do one coming up with a, a ex-Israeli uh, Defense Forces guy. So that should be an interesting conversation. And one of my patrons is currently in the IDF. So if he's not in Gaza right now or something, like maybe we can talk and like figure out like what exactly is going on there. So once again, if you guys want that experience, patreon.com slash break the rules for the $20 patrons. I'm going to have live events in New York City as well as live events on the internet that I would love for you guys to be a part of. So go there, do that. And also Discord, completely forgot to mention Discord. Break the Rules has a Discord server. Go to the Discord server right now. You are going to meet a lot of like-minded people who enjoy these kind of conversations. And uh, yeah, who enjoy the conversations of having people like Sean and Glenn who are from completely different circles, being able to engage, sometimes agree, sometimes disagree. But the fact that we are able to engage right now as we are is magical. And I really appreciate you guys being here for that. And also, lastly, I keep saying lastly, but this is truly, truly lastly, uh, levslens.com. This is my Substack. Join my Substack right now. Go to this article. Read it. It's a really good article. Elon Musk resistance is futile. As the Tesla founder preaches capitulation in the face of Russia, Putin reinforces ties with Hamas in the new axis of evil. All right, so you know what to do. Anyway, super chat time. We got a new way forward who is a BTR patron, great guy, 999. Glad I was able to catch the discussion. Very much appreciate your perspectives on this. Thank you, Glenn and Sean. Thank you, New Way Forward. And Ryan Acorn. I wonder if he's like half man, half squirrel. Ryan Acorn, $5 for both. To what extent do you believe society is conditioned to suspect POCs? And to what extent are POCs conditioned to suspect society? Whoever wants to go. I mean, I think I've been pushing that agenda since the beginning of the conversation that there is just uh, uh, an aspect here uh, of how this system oppresses people of color and how it's built in a way that's systemically oppressive that I think has been hugely left out of much of the conversation and is often left out of the conversation because it's a very uncomfortable conversation for people to have. The truth is our criminal justice system is not applied equally. I wish it was. Um, and that's part of what drives me also towards a system that I think can be much more equitable. Sean. Um, I, I do think there is um, there is condition. It's not just people of color, but there is conditioning from within certain groups to be distrustful of law enforcement. Like I, I know you just said uh, you're from Russia. Like, do, do you not have that anti-cop thing in uh, in Russian communities or? Uh, you you do no well you do to a certain extent but then again the way that I was raised and the people who I know were raised were you know very much like you know if a cop tells you to do something you got to do it and all all that kind of stuff like I think that that is also important to keep in mind that if you are on the hands of a cop who's doing something wrong what I am thankful for is that not perfect but relative to other places in the world most places in the world i'd say where there's a lot of corruption going on that america is still a nation of lawyers and that's something that i appreciate where it's definitely not close to being perfect and i understand what glenn was talking about there are certain communities that uh, you know are not able to navigate those waters as well and it's an unfortunate state of events but 
I can only compare things to other things. You know, I can't compare something to an ideal that right. either doesn't exist or that exists with like a high trust society that's been operating that way for like hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's kind of like the difficulty going back to this whole discussion where how exactly would we keep people safe while at the same time reforming? I personally think that the way that we should do it, curious what you guys think, unless we get one more super chat here. Well, yeah. I, I want to answer the second half of that question. Oh, before. answer, please. Go for so it. So the, the yeah. second half is, are we conditioned to suspect people of color? Uh, yes and no. I don't think it's to the extent that Glenn is talking mm. about. I'll give an example of like what clearly is like societal conditioning in a second. But I do think the behavior is different. Like if you look at the homicide rates, like they're this is like undeniable. They are higher in black communities. They're higher in Hispanic communities. Uh, like, you know, they were higher in Italian communities before. Like, so part of that is a reaction to the data that we see or reaction to like the perception, which is rooted in reality. That being said, there's a great video that I'll watch. So that I recommend you watch. It's from, it's from what would you do where they have a attractive blonde girl try to steal a bike and they have a a white like a white maybe 18 year old try to steal a bike and then they have a black kid at age 16 try to steal a bike there's definitely some perception there that the black kid is more criminal like it's it is a fact like go watch the video it is clear and i i like the what would you do kind of experiment because they they show these things to us even though they're not the same people seeing the person going for the bike or whatever but the blonde girl quite literally ask people to help her cut the chain and the black kid approaching the bike is getting shouted at to give you an idea of the disparity so like that definitely does exist and like to a certain degree but there is impact that is based on behavior that people either are aware of or they've observed so it's not all unjustified if that makes sense so okay before the solution uh, before my solution glenn any response to that um, that if you have higher rates of black people, uh, of black people committing crimes, and that is what the data tells you. It's just, I mean, the problem I have with that argument is not the, what the data says. It's what the response to the data is. I mean, we right now see mostly white men committing uh, serious crimes with uh, automatic weapons. And we're not responding the same way we seem to be responding when it's in a black community and we're scared of what's going on in that community. Like, I just think that the response is way too heavy handed, doesn't follow the data. Um, and and it's not evenly applied when you think about policymaking. I, I think I think we actually so if you look at like the gun violence archive and I actually don't think their metric for for mass shootings, I think it's designed to inflate the number of mass shootings, right? But this is where you get like, there's a mass shooting every day in the United States of America. If you look at where those shootings are occurring, that they're fine to count in order to bolster the numbers, they're disproportionately overwhelmingly in black neighborhoods. But the thing is, the ones that get the attention are the ones with the higher casualty count to be sure. Okay. But because in the gun violence archive, they count three or more injuries in these shootings, yep. which is why I don't like their count. But um, and and if there's if there's a what you call it, if there's a uh, and and like in those and I still think it's proportional they are proportionally white shooters like there's sixty something percent white population we're around sixty percent of the mass shooters so like I do think those are our outlier events you can pay attention to that for sure but the point I was trying to make about overall like 
overall criminality. It's just like it's it's just something logical. Like if you're let's say if you take race out of it completely, if there's five 16 year olds on one side of the street, right? And it's the middle of the night and on the other side of the street and five 16 year old males on one side of the street in the middle of the night, they're crowding around whatever, right? On the other side of the street, there's an 85 year old woman, right? You like, if you were to pick a street to, to walk on, that where you're less likely to be victimized by a criminal, chances are being by the 85 year old woman, like by the numbers to an overwhelming majority is safer than being by five 16 year olds. Like, I, I hear you. I you just think, agree, that, right? I think that you're taking a complex uh, situation and simplifying it in a way that obviously would get you the response you're looking for. I just think that the issues are just so much more complex. No, I'm not saying that they aren't more complicated. Like I said, there are definite instances where the, again, like the reason I, I, I recommend people watch that. What would you do experiment is because maybe people in my, my audience would not, would not believe this, but there definitely is a judgment that people make. And a lot of it's mm. on a subconscious level that is clear and obvious, but I'm saying not all of that judgment is unjustified just because of racism just because like there is higher rates of criminality among black communities there's higher rates among hispanic communities and by the way if you're asian and you're walking around a white neighborhood there's higher rates of criminality in that white neighborhood than the neighborhood that you probably live in like if you assuming people are living but, in there but you agree that neighborhoods are still segregated by race and white people tend to kill white people black people tend oh, of to course. kill black people uh -huh. of course like that's not even something to agree to. It's like if you look at the homicide rates, they are what they are. Like you know, or or the rate of perpetrator to victim. It's people are more likely to kill people that they know. They're more likely to live amongst uh, their own ethnic group. Like overall, right. obviously, there's some more diverse neighborhoods. Everybody understands that. And yeah, so it's like 84 percent of white people who are murdered are murdered by white people. It's I think 88 to 91 percent of black people who are murdered are murdered by black people. Uh, Asians, they might be too small of a sample size for us to know, but it should be similar. Hispanics, same deal. Although Hispanics might be mixed because we get categorized weird. Like, right. you know, yeah. sometimes they're listed as white. Sometimes they're listed as Hispanic or, you know, depending on how they're categorized in the police, because it's an ethnic group, not a racial category. But it should be the same. Well, can we decide on this, by the way, just like both of you guys, that regardless of let's say glenn you're uh, completely right in saying that these are complicated issues 100 percent. but like we were saying before or at least i was making this point that uh unfortunately the way our society is wired is that people are going to go for the blunt instrument when it comes to solving any kind of problem in the world the only thing we can do is try to work around these issues of people not really thinking that wisely in advance while understanding that yeah in our reality people are going to choose the blunt approach to solve this so when it comes to talking about crime and you know racial characteristics things of that nature it is going to be a blunt answer a lot of these times as far as how society addresses it. But then what is the trade-off to doing the reverse? What would be the trade-off to saying we're going to completely ignore any of these issues when it comes to how many police are stationed in one neighborhood versus another one? Would that be a good trade-off or a bad trade-off when it comes to minimizing the amount of innocent people that end up getting hurt? 
Yeah, I am not willing to sacrifice liberty in pursuit of security. Like, I, I'm just not that sort of person. So the idea of people having their civil rights violated so some other group of people can feel safer. I've heard you try to make the argument a few times in this conversation, and you've done a great job. I'm just not going to, I don't buy into it. I, I buy into a society that sounds like the ideal that I grew up hearing, a country where we can have equity and we can have safety and we can treat people uh, you know, in ways that protect their civil rights. I actually think we can get there. And if people don't hold on to that, we end up with the kind of dictatorship and authoritarian government where fear is the way of controlling people. And that's just not something I aspire to or something I want for people who, um, people who I care about. Well, I, the, I, would, yeah, I, would, yeah. I would say to this blunt instrument question, like you gotta try to be as precise as possible. So like if you're in a black neighborhood as a police officer to deal with crime, like you have to understand that the people you're trying to prevent from being victimized or help after they're victimized are more likely than not going to be black residents in that same neighborhood. So he gave an example early on of being pulled over because he was near a place where there's like a like a, a prostitution thing. Right. And yeah. they said, you're in a prostitution hotspot. That's why we're pulling you over. Right. Like, that's really annoying if that, like, let's say, you know, it's it's a, a, they're doing surveillance for, like, a drug thing or whatever, right? And people who drive up to this area, they're going to get stopped when they leave that area. I've seen this on Cops a million times. Like, you're like, oh, that's a smart tactic or whatever. But the problem is, like, in the hundred apartments in that building that aren't selling crack or whatever, those are people who live there. And you're stopping them, too. So, like, you have to keep in mind that you're inconveniencing and harassing the people that live there when, in reality, your hit rate for people who don't live there because they would be driving to this building for this reason is going to be higher. So, like, you have to be precise if you're an officer. And this is, like, yeah. with any crime. Like, the people who are getting robbed in the black neighborhood are black people. The people who are getting robbed in the Hispanic neighborhood are Hispanic people. The people who are getting robbed in the white neighborhood are white people. But also... Those are the people doing it in each respective neighborhood. So you have to like if you're if you're there, you have to be precise because you're talking about a small percentage of the population that are committing the crimes at any given time. And then an even smaller percentage of that criminal population that are committing a disproportionate amount of the crime. And those are the people that you're trying to get off the streets. And those are the people, by the way, that are also committing a lot of the violent crimes that victimize other people that get them into a bad mindset that leads to more downstream negative effects so like you do have to be precise you can't just be a blunt in instrument no, like, but the whole point of yeah. data-driven policing is to be more precise not to be not to target like not to target populations uh not not as a pretext to target populations no, you're absolutely right, and I think, Glenn, you would agree uh, with the need to be as precise as possible. My only thing which I keep coming back to is people talk a lot about things that are good to implement, what you should do. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying that the reality of the situation usually is that whatever people say what people should do usually ends up not really getting to that level, and usually it's more about what people will do. 
And those are the realities that unfortunately we end up contending with. Not like what's the best thing that could possibly happen in any given scenario, but what's the likeliest thing to happen in any given scenario, knowing history, knowing all the things that have happened before us, while, to Glenn's point, working to fix that. So that's the, that's the riddle here. That's the problem that we currently have. Like, how do we deal with reality while at the same time trying to improve that reality? Yeah, I totally hear your argument, um, except it feels like you're offering me a plea deal and I just don't take plea <laughs> deals anymore. Been there, done that. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. Look, I know that you are somebody who has way, way more experience than I do or other people in life when it comes to dealing with this uh, with the system. I also know that, at least from our conversations, you're somebody who's pretty idealistic. Like, you want to see the best in people. You want the best in people to be brought out in the neighborhood. My only contention would be as somebody from the USSR, you know, not just from Russia, but I was still born when there was the Soviet Union, was that there were a lot of idealistic people back then who talked about equity, who talked about all that stuff. What ended up happening, though, was they were the first ones that were put up against the wall and shot by the people who were working with uh, Joseph Stalin, for instance, and he would be the example of the dictator that ends up making use of whatever revolutionary sentiment is in the air and taking power. So that is the other. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you a similar story for your listeners. Uh, the district attorney in my case, when the judge was sentencing me, his first offer to me was 20 to 40. I ended up with three to nine. Uh, the prosecutor was really pissed off that the judge offered me three to nine and stood in front of the judge. And the only thing he had to share was, this is one step short of organized crime and Mr. Martin was the head of it. He will never be anything in his life. And judge, you're making a huge mistake in giving him such a low amount of time. He was wrong. I know a lot of people in my community that if they're given an opportunity, they show up differently. So when you told a story earlier about dumping the garbage in the park and coming back later and seeing that garbage pile be much more significant, that's a I have a problem with that. But the other problem I have is that you don't just deploy the NYPD, you deploy sanitation, you deploy anything like there's so many other resources you could deploy. And I think we're having the same conversation, except I just feel we haven't done a good job of deploying other resources to achieve those outcomes. Well, here's the solution that I was getting to earlier. Uh, this is my proposition. So we could potentially work with, let's say, entities like the US military, for instance, to have a Marshall plan for the hood. And I know that sounds kind of controversial here, but when we think of what happened with Japan after World War II uh, and Germany and other places, when it comes to there being a lack of parental, specifically fatherly influence within, uh, within a lot of black neighborhoods, for instance, I think, Glenn, that is something that we can agree on as a problem, right? I don't know. My father was a white police officer, bro. Well, that not specifically you as the exception. I'm talking about like the full, I'm talking about. No, you're not going to get me to agree to that either, man. Like the, that there aren't problems think, with fatherhood. and I, I, I think that people benefit from households that are stable, that are safe, yeah. where people have resources. But I've seen single parents pull that off. And I've seen gay parents pull it off. I've seen all different types pull it off. I don't think you... But then we're living in a weird limbo-like scenario where we can't point to something and say, this is a significant problem that should be addressed. Now we're just in this weird equity state where everybody's got the same amount of problems. Only because you're looking for a silver bullet. No, it's not a silver bullet. It's something to address. No, I I always ask me, what do you want for your children? You should want the same thing for just about everyone. That's a good measure of what you deploy when you think about uh, increasing public safety is that 
you know, I mean, when I came out of prison, I landed at a nonprofit and they were making this case that people with criminal records should not be barred from access to public benefits. And I was like, really? Is that what is that where we're spending our time? Like, if I'd never had a public benefit in my life, I'd be okay. Like, do for me what you want for your children. Hmm. You want them to go to Yale. You want them to have a good job. Like, want that for my folks. And trust me, you will get better public safety outcomes. So you're looking for the silver bullet. I just can't buy into the silver bullet argument. Before, like, but wait, no be, one... before Sean replies, there's a comment over here from o, uh, Ofuchs who says, aren't single parent households even more predictive of lesser outcomes than race? Um, Maybe. I... That's not the conversation we tend to have, that we talk about black parents being missing in the household. I mean, even I just brought up public benefits, like more poor white people are on public benefits in the United States than people of color, but we don't have that conversation so maybe that's true i just don't well, know what there, there, there are there are more white people in the country i think per, per per as a percentage of population it is higher for black people but i i will say look we know that there are negative outcomes for single single mothers that are higher right but that's not like you're automatically going to be criminal or sure. anything like that it's just that if you are incarcerated you have a greater chance of having coming from a single parent household than a double parent household but that being said like, sure, like you can if you want to change incentives that you think lead to to an increase in single motherhood, then that's fine. But like there are kids being raised right now by single mothers. So like even if you like somehow magically. Well, well that that's my idea. That's where the idea comes well, in of bringing in. If you fix that yeah. going forward, that's not like they're going to work it out with like whoever the father is or. or no, know, no, not whoever or, the father or, or, is. Or if the father died or whatever. Right? It sets a good example, so, though. So if you have part, people in their lives. Sure who are good father figures like for example like ex-military people people who are good at like having like a res being like respectable uh war guy like mentorship yeah yeah, yeah. but like I, I think, even like, even more even more than is, the mentorship even more than mentorship. i think mentorship Somebody who could, is fine but like yeah. here here's here's what i would here's what i would say okay uh single mothers care about their kids just like double parent households right like we know the numbers i i i don't think that they're in dispute I think it's it would be as a practical policy like that you could implement is parents should be able to choose what school they send their kids to. Like I, I'm a big believer in school choice. And like when I see people line up around the street to get like around the block to get into a lottery to enter their kid it to get a scholarship in order to go to one of these like charter schools that are successful. Like I think to myself, why aren't there more seats in that school for that kid and it's like not for lack of caring because go look at the people that are lining up yeah it's it's not that it's not that black people care about their kids any less than anybody else because they do these lotteries in the winter and they're lining up around the street in order to get their kid into the school so they know and they want better for their kids but like sometimes they don't have the opportunity in certain areas certain income brackets in order to get that and like we shouldn't have a situation where you have to get the right number in a lottery ball in order to win that like you should be able mm. to have that choice available no i agree with you only just so my statement is a little bit clearer here what i mean by being beyond the mentor is let's say you have somebody who has had experience just like living in a rough and tumble environment and preferably somebody who had like you know military experience you know like with discipline things of that nature who can be looked at by a lot of younger men as being somebody who is 
worthy of respect. And then having somebody like that just be a figure, not even for one kid, but for a lot of kids in the hood. And I think that could be a great thing, you know, somebody to look up to rather than some of the other like younger people who are part of gangs. So at least to me, it seems to work out in my head. I don't know, Glenn, if a system like that would work. I can't imagine it being a bad thing. Uh, I mean, sometimes those are the same people that go home and beat their wife. Like literally sometimes a single family household is better than a dual family household. Do people need mentoring? Yes. Um, do, should we invest in mentoring? Yes. Should we invest in the things that work in communities where people have better safety outcomes? Yes. I don't, I'm not convinced that it means having uh, two people, two parents in the same household. Hmm. But uh, I, I don't know. It's a weird thing. You're talking about parents, uh, you know, drinking, like the husband drinking, beating his wife. Obviously, that's horrible. But I don't know. It just seems like any community where not only the parents, but like the entire extended family is like really close together and look after each other. That's a beautiful thing. And that's something by hook or by crook that we should uh, encourage. Yeah, to, uh, develop. people have that, believe it or not. Right. No, I'm sure that everybody has that. Only right yeah. now, if we are seeing broken homes in certain parts of the world, then those are the places where we have to look in as much as we can, right? Like, right. Yeah, that, that's a great American Pie argument. It's just not my reality. Sorry. It's just mm. not my reality. Like, I, I mean, it, look, there was a guy who lived down the block from me when I was younger. His name was Quentin. I always remember. And he had both parents at home and the whole family at home. And yes, it felt like a really warm household that I wanted to be a part of because it was a dad and a mom and everything else. But I got to tell you, there was so much dysfunction between all that, so much worse than my single family, single parent household. Like the kind of dysfunction I saw, like he hung the cat out the window by the neck with a, th with a wire, with a rope, like one evening, the father. And yet he also was the guy who took us all to Midtown Manhattan to watch a movie every weekend and got us popcorn and candy. I just think that you're making an argument and making it very sort of rudimentary when it's much more complex. It would be interesting to know, again, the stats for the people whose family is like a husband and a wife, you know, not to mention, you know, grandparents and so on to take care versus a family situation where, number one, the mother is too young. So the grandparents end up taking care of the child or in a situation where there's just the wife and no husband. And like oh, Flux just said right now, a non-abusive extra pair of hands around the house almost certainly makes for better child raising. So my question to you or anybody else is, what are the stats when it comes to the non-abusive pair of hands it's, it's, versus yeah. – Look, I, 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 I... It's undeniable that a two-parent household, it's undeniable that if you look at the numbers, if they're, you're married before you have children, that on average your kid has better outcomes. Obviously, there are different, you know, there, there are different like outlier instances or whatever, but it, it, is, a, it is true. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know why we're getting like bogged down on this. And as for uh, when you have the extra pair of parents, like the grandparents, like I don't, I'm sure there are numbers on it. I would presume that the outcomes are probably better in that scenario because like what cultures have the grandparents in the household, like Indians, most successful ethnic group in the United States of America and East Asians, very successful ethnic groups in the United States of America. Now, if your grandparents are living with you because you're broke, probably your outcomes aren't as good as if they're living for with you because of a cultural reason like that. But like, I mean, it's just, yeah, that would be great if more it would be great if more people like modeled successful behavior. And I think we can encourage that. But 
the fact of the matter is we have a bunch of people that are not in those situations. So like we have to think of policies for them too. I, I the only thing I would add here is uh, even, even if the data says you get better outcomes, if you have double parents, if you have the grandparents around and so on, like, I don't think I dispute that. I just don't know if the reason is just because they're around. There's a bunch of different things. They contribute financially to the household. They contribute in terms of, you know, daycare, childcare. There's, there's a bunch of things that they contribute that can be provided in other ways than forcing people into, uh, you know, two parent household. But, but I got to say the whole daycare, childcare as somebody from the USSR, that's always been super creepy. For me personally, when you have these politicians talk about like, oh, we got to have more of these like, you know, uh, community as a village sort of things. And then you have like the worst losers in the entire world who are now in charge of your kids, as opposed to people who actually have an incentive in your kids who are the ones that end up hanging around the most with your kids. You know, like that's kind of a weird thing for me when there's so much emphasis on these complete strangers who might as well be, you know, employees of the uh um, you know, of like the, um, what's that place where you go for the cars? I keep forgetting the name. DMV. It's like you have DMV employees who are now in charge of your kid's life. And same thing with like public schools and all of these institutions where, personally speaking, I don't know your experience, but a lot of these people I find to be tremendously horrible when it comes to how they uh, treat your kids as opposed to how a uh, family would. Again, data-wise... I agree. I don't doubt what you're saying is right. But now you sound sort of like one of those folks that are looking for a utopia. The fact is 50% of people in the United States get divorced. And so I don't think we're trending in the direction that you're describing. You sound a bit like me now. It's not good that we're going in that direction, believe me. But the fact that we see what is a better alternative to the situation now means that we, like you were talking about with your reforms, we should aim for that. But anyway, I think we are going to be concluding here. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? And also plugs. We got to plug away. I would just wrap up by uh, saying that, you know, I've lived, I've been around five decades now. And so... I've seen us at the height of locking people up in the United States, but I've also seen us enjoy almost two decades of crime being down and us thinking about what we could do differently. And the same way uh, we got here by a million cuts, I hope that we have the appetite for getting out of it with a million band-aids, because I think we really got ourselves in trouble and it was heavy handed for certain communities, particularly communities of color. And uh, those communities want to believe that they live in a country where if we're all moving towards equity and justice and all the things we say we care about, then we leave room for the idea of doing things differently. All right. And uh, Shaw, oh, and also, Glenn, where can we find you? All the plugs. Plug away, my friend. Cool. Uh, mostly on Twitter, at Glenn E. Martin, G-L-E-N-N-E-M-A-R-T-I-N, uh, at gemtrainers.com, G-E-M trainers.com. I'd say any of those two places and you, you'll be sure to get a response. What is Gem Trainers? Uh, I run a nonprofit consultancy where I help people to fundraise around criminal justice reform issues, nonprofits. Excellent. And uh, Sean, uh, where could the good people find you? And also, what do you happen to be working on right now? What do we have to look forward to? Uh, I got videos. I'm also going to... Um... To, to texas to do a live debate with destiny and somebody else I, for, I forgot i they scheduled me for two um you can find me on twitter at i am sean spelled like the traditional irish way s-e-a-n 
on YouTube uh, at Actual Justice Warrior. And you should be able to find all my links from there. I have a website at actualjusticewarrior.com slash join. But like, just, just, they're all, it's, you'll be able to find my links if you find one of the links. So Twitter and YouTube is my preference. Um, I'm like, thank you for uh, having me on the thing. I, I appreciate it. I had a good time. I think it was a good conversation. Excellent, excellent. And also, before I forget, Glenn, you also have the GoFundMe. Uh, so one more time, where could people uh, find GoFundMe? I'm, I'm putting that link in here as well. But uh, what is the GoFundMe about? The GoFundMe uh, for me is about uh, the idea that I actually want to see if we can achieve some better outcomes by literally just giving people cash who come home from prison so they can make their own decisions about what they do with that. Are some people going to mess it up? A couple people might do drugs. Maybe. I don't care because I think the majority of people are actually going to go out, take their kids out to dinner, take their wife, their partner out to dinner. And I just want to create an opportunity for them to see a world where people actually still care about them, because that was really important to me when I came out of prison 23 years ago. Excellent. And once again, patreon.com slash break the rules, become a patron today. And also levslens.com, my glorious Substack. Listen, if you guys have not joined the Substack yet, what are you doing with your lives? Go there right now. It's free to subscribe. If you want to get any additional scratch my way, I would certainly appreciate that as well. There are membership tiers in there. And the new article, Elon Musk, Resistance is Futile, as the Tesla founder preaches capitulation in the face of Russia, Putin reinforces ties with Hamas and the new axis of evil. And that, by the way, is both as a uh, article as well as audio. So for the people who don't like to read good news you guys can listen so there we go everything is taken care of and also be sure to hit that subscribe button once again hit the like button hit the bell that's extremely important and i'm noticing that there are not enough likes on this video guys what are you doing like this video right now do it do it do it anyway guys thank you so much for watching you could follow me at levpo levpo on twitter and i will see you next time take care everybody bye